The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. Uh, Our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. So if you have a physical Bible or electronic Bible, I'll just give you a second to turn there. Again, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And at this point in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if you're beginning to ask the same question that I am, which is basically just this, how in the world are we going to live this out? I mean, if you've been with us, as we walk through the Beatitudes, you saw the Beatitudes invite us into kingdom life of true joy, but we simultaneously saw that is a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ, no matter the cost. Even even if the cost is exclusion from the kingdoms of this world, or even if the cost is persecution from the kingdoms of this world. Indeed, we've been told the last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been told that that is one of the ways we bear witness to the world of the worth of Christ. We, the church, we cling to Christ. When we cling to him, no matter the cost, we're showing the world that he's worth more than anything else to us. We're being the salt of the earth, Jesus says. Something that's distinct, different, it's got a different flavor. It doesn't blend in with the blandness of the world. Everyone else in the world grasps, tries to cling to the exact same treasures that they believe will satisfy And when we cling to Christ, we're showing that he is the only true treasure that will satisfy. We're serving as the light of the world that shines a spotlight on the true treasure, Christ. This this is the kingdom life of true joy in Jesus. And I've just got one question. How in the world are we going to live it? I don't know about you, I don't have the power to live this beatitude life. I don't have what it takes to be salt and light. Like, how in the world am I supposed to live wholeheartedly devoted to Christ? That's my question this morning. But it's not the only question being asked at this point in the sermon. It might be the question that I'm asking, but what about the people who originally heard this sermon? Those first century Jews, Jesus' disciples, and the surrounding crowds. I think that at this point in the sermon, they probably had a different question running through their mind. And I think that because of Jesus' opening words in our passage this morning. Look at it, Matthew 5 and verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is just a summary way of saying the entire Old Testament. 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that. Don't let that into your mind. Apparently, Jesus thinks that the question rolling around in people's minds, his hearers' minds, was, is Jesus abolishing, through everything he's saying, through everything he's doing, is he abolishing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament? What, why would they think that? I mean, there are many different reasons, but the easiest one to point to is because up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Christ has been announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived in his coming. Kingdom of God, which you've always been looking forward to, it's here, it's coming now, in my coming. And here's how you are a part of that kingdom. Not through devotion to the law and Moses, which is what they would have thought. You're a part of the kingdom through wholehearted devotion to me. And that would cause the people to ask Jesus, are are you abolishing the law and the prophets? Dude, like, don't you know that's our Bible? That's that's the word of the living God. This would have been the question of the first century Jews. So this morning, we've got two questions. We've got a 21st century question. And we got a first century question. 21st century question, how in the world are we going to live a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ? And a first century question, is Christ abolishing the Old Testament? And while I know those two questions sound incredibly different, but they actually have the exact same answer. That's why I've laid them out for us together. They have the same answer, and it is the answer that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through his answer, unpack it all along the way, and then at the very end, we will see how he has answered our two questions. Got the plan? Yes, everybody, nine o'clock, raring to go as always. All right, well, we're going. Here we go. Verse 17. Let's start unpacking his answer together. Look at it again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so this passage touches on one of the most hotly debated issues in all of Christian theology. It's the issue of how do we, as Christians, relate to the Old Testament? Ever thought that as you read through it? Any of you doing a Bible reading plan, catching yourself in some passages in Leviticus, being like, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? Like, especially the the law. We have an especially hard time of thinking, how do we as Christians relate to the law? That question's not new to us. We find it in the pages of the New Testament. Just read Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem basically convenes a a conference, a, a council, to debate this question. This has been a question throughout all of church history. And it's not just, at this point, please don't check out on me. You may just be thinking, oh, this is just a fun academic exercise. This is high and lofty theology. How do Christians relate to the Old Testament? It's not that. This is a vitally important and vitally practical question. It's vitally practical because this has to do with two-thirds of your Bible. Three-fourths of it, probably more like it. And it's vitally important because there are cliffs on both sides of this question. And people in my life, I have watched them fall off on either side. There's cliffs on both sides of this question. That's what we see right here in Christ's words in verse 17. We see two cliffs. Two cliffs. Cliff number one, abolishing the law and the prophets with Christ. 
with number one that we need to avoid, abolishing the law and the prophets with Christ. The Greek word for abolish here is kataluo, which is fun to say, but it also literally means destroy. Like it's, it's a word that was used very commonly to talk about the destruction of a, a building. Like this is demolishing, destroying, getting rid of, cutting off the entirety of the law. And throughout church history, there have been Christians who have tried to use Christ, use Jesus to abolish the law and the prophets. That's what I mean when I say, this is cliff number one, abolishing the law and the prophets with Christ. They use Christ like an instrument, like he's the way we can say, oh, we've got Jesus now, the fullest revelation of God, so we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We don't need the law and the prophets. They use Christ to try and abolish the Old Testament. We, we don't need that. You can just chunk it. You don't have to get far at all in, all in church history to see that happening. Just, just look up a first century heretic by the name of Marcion. Marcion was born in 85 AD. The apostle John wasn't dead yet. And Marcion, one of his most famous heresies, he had many, know your heretics, but one of his, it's a fun game we should all play, you know, in the afternoon, know your heretics. Um, sorry, nine o'clock, it's the best I got. It's the best I got trying to wake you up. Um, the thing he's most well known for is chunking the Old Testament, parts of the new as well, but the entirety of the Old Testament. Lop it off, we don't need it anymore. And there are people, even pastors still today, who, who talk about the Old Testament this way, like it's useless or pointless, or at the very least, it's problematic to the point we'd be better off without it. I mean, can't we just get rid of like those bloody passages about conquest in the book of Joshua? That would be helpful. Any passages having to do with God's wrath, any passages having to do with human sexuality, it'd be really great if we could just like kick those to the curb. Help out our evangelism a lot. I mean, and, and, usually, and they used, people use Christ to try to do this. They'll, they'll say these things that we see. None of that really squares with the God that we see revealed in Jesus, does it? God of love and kindness and, and mercy. And people use Christ to abolish the Old Testament in whole or in part. But Christ himself clearly calls that a cliff. Don't jump off it. Look at it again. He says, do not think. A phrase that means do not consider. Do not even let the thought come into your mind for a single solitary second. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. That's a cliff. Don't jump off it. And in verses 18 and 19, Jesus is going to show us just how steep that cliff is. So that we'll never even consider taking that leap as we think about how we as christians relate to the old testament jesus says here's cliff number one to avoid abolishing the law and the prophets with christ but that's not the only cliff we got cliff number two which is this applying the law and the prophets without christ applying cliff number two applying the law and the prophets without Christ. In other words, throughout church history, once again, there have been those who've taken this route. They've tried to apply the Old Testament to their lives. And we're going to take it seriously. Jesus said, don't abolish it. So we're going to try to apply it to our lives, especially the law. But we're going to do it as though the coming of Christ has no effect on that application whatsoever. 
In other words, Jesus is great, but these people want to say we are still bound to follow the law in the same way that Israel was. Just read the book of Galatians. This was live fire stuff going on in Paul's day. In the book of Galatians, you will find a sect known as the Judaizers. And they said in order to be a real Christian, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to follow the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. All of that's still required. And this argument was so powerful that in Galatians we read even Peter, Peter, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Even Peter is led astray. He withdraws from eating with those who don't keep the Old Testament dietary restrictions, and Paul has got to call him on the carpet for that. Say you're living in a way that's out of step with the gospel of, of Christ. And this has not just been an issue throughout church history. There are still groups today who interpret the law in this way. They apply the law and the prophets without Christ. And they like to point out, didn't Christ himself say he didn't come to abolish the law? Yes, he did say that. But he also said that he came to fulfill it. It's not that he doesn't have any effect on it at all. Look at it again. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to affect them somehow, but to fulfill them. It's not that Christ's coming has no effect on how we relate to the Old Testament. It does. It doesn't abolish it, but it does do something to how we apply it because he fulfills it. Greek word for fulfill right here is pleroo, which again, just fun to say. It has many different meanings, many different things it can mean, but right here it means to fill up, to complete. You can think of it as like to bring to its goal. I know that's what it means because this is how Matthew uses this word consistently to describe the work of Christ. You want a list? Just just go this afternoon. Look back at Matthew 1 and verse 22 or chapter 2 and verse 15 or chapter 3 and verse 15. Or you can look forward in Matthew to Matthew 8 and verse 17, Matthew 12 and verse 17, 13, 35 or 21, 4. Again and again and again in all these passages, what you're going to find is Matthew using the Old Testament to point forward to Christ and claim that Christ has fulfilled it, brought it to its goal, brought it to, to that which it was pointing. We typically normally only think this way specifically with prophecies. Like a prophet made this little tiny statement and Jesus' this little tiny event in his life fulfills it and we draw that direct line. Matthew doesn't do just that. He does that. But he says that Christ fulfills the whole law and prophet. He says the whole Old Testament, law and prophets, all prophesied and pointed to Christ. Just look back, look forward, actually, at Matthew 11 and verse 13. Matthew 11 and verse 13, he says the law and the prophets prophesied. All of it pointed forward to Christ. And he fulfilled it all, every prophecy. But more than that, every law. But more than that, Every word of the Old Testament, the entire story of Israel, even the way Matthew tells his gospel. He starts out the first four chapters of his gospel, he takes the story of Israel and he sets it next to the life of Christ in order to show that Christ is reliving, recapitulating the story of Israel and fulfilling everywhere where they failed, he succeeds. He fulfills it all. Prophecies, the laws, the story 
of Israel, all of it was leading up to Jesus. I had a professor once who told me, uh, it was my preaching professor, and he said, you should be able to flip to any passage in the Old Testament, point to any text, and preach Jesus. I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. You know what he did? He took this verse from Genesis, where Joseph, you remember Joseph, when he, he goes to find his brothers, and they're actually going like, to tear off his coat of many colors, throw him in the pit, and all of that. There's this verse where Joseph like, finds this guy and says, hey, my brothers came this way. Do you know which way they went? And the guy literally goes, that way. That's the whole verse. And my professor proceeds to preach Christ from that verse. He says, if that guy doesn't say that way, Joseph doesn't go and find his brothers. They don't throw him in a pit. He doesn't get sold into slavery in Egypt, which means he doesn't save them, which means that years later there is no people of Israel in order for Christ to come and bring salvation to the world. And I'm just sitting there like, you win. You win. It's because the whole of Scripture is caught up in one grand narrative that comes to one grand conclusion in one grand person. Jesus Christ. Therefore, it all can only be rightly understood when it is seen through Him. Jesus Himself says that. Go read Luke 24, after His resurrection, when He makes an appearance to two of His disciples on the road to Emmaus. We read this, Luke 24 and verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that's the law, and the prophets, so the whole Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says you cannot understand the entire story rightly. You can't understand the Old Testament rightly unless you see it through him. You can't understand the story without its end. You can't understand any story rightly without its end. I mean, Cinderella would just be a tale of cruelty, of, of how nothing ever works out for the kind and gentle without its conclusion. Snow White would just be a tragedy. It wouldn't be a comedy. Lord of the Rings would just be an epic with, with darkness conquering everything in the end. It wouldn't have six happy endings. Nobody gets that joke. That's okay. I'm able to make fun of the things that I love. It's fine. The point is, none of these stories would be understood in the way that the author intended. You cannot understand a story without its end. And the divine author of Scripture, yeah, it's got many human authors, but one divine author. The divine author of Scripture intended for all of it to be fulfilled in Christ. You can't understand the Old Testament apart from Him, much less apply it apart from its fulfillment in Him. Jesus says, that's a cliff. Try to apply that without looking at it through the lens of me and my fulfillment. That's a cliff. In verse 20, he's going to show us just how steep that cliff is so that we will never consider jumping off it. Shades. As we think about how we as Christians relate to the Old Testament, Jesus says there are two cliffs that must be avoided. Abolishing the law and the prophets with Christ or applying the law and the prophets without Christ. Let's walk through these next three verses where he takes us one at a time and tiptoes us up to the edge of each of these cliffs so we can see just how steep they are. Look at verses 18 and 19. Here Jesus is going to show us how steep the cliff is trying to use him to abolish the law and the prophets. Got Jesus? Don't need the Old Testament anymore. 
He shows us how steep that is. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus looks at the Old Testament and he says, all of this is always the word of God. That's what he just said in verse 18. He's making it really hard. He's making it impossible to use him as an excuse to abolish any of the Old Testament because he says of the Old Testament, all of it is God's word. Every iota, every dot. Iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is basically saying right here, the Old Testament is God's word down to the smallest letter. He goes even further than that because he doesn't just say the smallest letter. He says the dot. A, a dot is a, it's a serif, S-E-R-I-F. Y'all know what a serif is? It's, it's a tiny pin stroke that distinguishes letters that look similar. So think of, think of a lowercase l. And a lowercase t, and the only difference is that little stroke when you cross the t, that's, that's a serif. That's what's meant by the, the dot right here. In other words, Jesus is saying the Old Testament, it's God's word down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest stroke of a, a pen. It's really hard to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus He says, all of it, all of it is God's word. And he says it always is, for all time. Look, he says the smallest letter in the pen stroke, they won't pass away until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. Both of those phrases, they're parallel to one another. Both of those phrases are a way of referring to the end. To, to the end of this age, to the consummation of all things, when Christ comes again and, and makes all things new, establishes his kingdom in, in full. In other words, both of those phrases are a way of saying always to the end of the age. Jesus says the all of the Old Testament is always the word of God. And, he's going to ratchet it up one more time for us, he says, and it is, all of it is always authoritative. That's what he says in verse 19. All of it is always authoritative. It's always the word of, it always speaks powerfully into our lives and calls us more to follow the Lord, shows us what that looks like. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So rabbis in Jesus' day would divide the commandments up into lesser and greater commandments. Which ones are lesser? Which ones are more important? That's why he gets asked a question at one point. What's the greatest commandment? They love to debate stuff like that. And so do you see what Jesus says right here? He says, don't even relax the least. Those, those, those commandments you put in that category of lesser, least, don't even relax one of those. Now, to get the full meaning of what he's saying here, it's important to know what, what that word relax actually is. It's the Greek word luo. Now, I know all of you remember every Greek word that I ever tell you. And so you remember the one that I said earlier, back up in verse 17, abolish, is the Greek word kata luo. Right here we get the word luo. That's not by mistake. What Jesus is saying is, 
is don't even abolish, destroy the commandments that you think aren't a big deal. I told you, all of the Old Testament is always the Word of God. Therefore, all of it is always authoritative. You abolish any of it, you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to be 100% honest with you, Shades. I'm not 100% sure what Jesus means by that. I've beat my head against that one all week. I'm not, I, I don't know what he means by you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Some scholars think that it's a poetic way of saying you won't even be included in the kingdom of heaven. It, it, the Greek is poetic right there. It, it contains this word play between least of the commandments and being the least in the kingdom of heaven. So it could be this poetic way of saying you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. But other scholars think that what Jesus means is that your growth as a disciple in the kingdom, we're in the kingdom right now, your growth as a disciple in the kingdom will be hindered. If you try to downplay the authority of the Old Testament or you try to abolish any of it, and you teach others to do the same, your, your discipleship will be hindered or damaged and so will be anybody who you, who you teach. Either way, I know Jesus means at least this much. This is not a good thing. Whatever it means to be least in the kingdom of heaven, I know it is not a good thing. To abolish any part of the Old Testament, in other words, to treat any of it as anything less than the authoritative word of God will damage us and anyone we teach. Shades, I've seen this. I've seen this. I've seen people Treat the law as if it being fulfilled by Christ means it has no significance for our lives. In fact, anything that sounds like law has no significance for our lives as Christians. I've seen people say not just the Old Testament, but even commands in the New Testament. They've got nothing to do with the Christian life. It's all law. And the only purpose of the law is to show us that we need Jesus. So people will even say that about the Sermon on the Mount. They'll say the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with living the Christian life. It's just meant to show you, you need Jesus. You can't live up to this standard. And while it's true, the law does show us that we can't live up to the standard and that we do need Christ. My question is, is that anything remotely true of what Jesus is saying right here? Seeing people use Christ's fulfillment of the law to act as if the law has no significance. Commands, even in the New Testament, have no significance. And they they become allergic to any talk of imperatives, any talk of commands, any talk of obedience. Especially when you start talking about commands that have to do with justice and mercy for the marginalized and oppressed. You're really allergic to that very quickly. Conveniently. This damages our discipleship. Just think about the way Jesus told us to make disciples at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. If if your Christianity has no place for commands, no place for obedience, then it has no place for Jesus. He will not let us use Him to abolish any part of the authoritative word of God, including the parts we wish weren't there. 
Shades, I've seen this. I've seen people try to use Jesus to abolish massive chunks of the Old Testament that they wish weren't there. All the passages we see about God's wrath poured out in like the flood or the plagues on Egypt doesn't, doesn't fit with Jesus. Or, or, job, or, or, or the look at passages like God's allowing Job to, to suffer or, or passages about uh, the biblical sexual ethic. And all, I mean, those, those things don't square with the kindness and love of Jesus. And people use Jesus to abolish the very word of which he says all of it is always authoritative. In other words, at the heart of what Jesus is saying right here is we need this word. We need all of it. Always. That's, that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. That's the heart of what he is affirming right here. We need the word of God. Do you see that? Shades. The cliff of trying to use Christ to abolish the law and the prophets, it is steeper than you can imagine. Because we always need all of the authoritative word of God, including the Old Testament. It shall never be abolished. At the same time, so hang on to everything I just said. I'm going to do some whiplash right here. At the same time, Jesus shows us how steep the cliff is on the other side. When we try to apply the law, and okay, we're not going to abolish it, we're going to use it, we're going to apply it in our lives. He shows us how steep it is when we try to apply the law and the prophets without Christ. Let's tiptoe up to the edge of that cliff to see how steep it is. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as soon as Jesus has spoken, verse 19, like as soon as he has said that, that we need to keep all the commandments because they're always authoritative, like people sitting in his audience, they would have immediately thought, oh, he means like the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were those who taught the law. The Pharisees were the most scrupulous, committed doers of the law. Is that not the very categories he just described in verse 19? You need to be those who teach and do the law down to the least commandment. They were thought, oh, he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. From the least to the greatest commandment, they are the ones who teach and keep them. So surely verses 17 to 19 and all that we've seen mean that we need to be like them. After all, Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law. It's always the authoritative word of God. We need it. So we got to keep it like the scribes and Pharisees. That's why verse 20 is so shocking. Hear it again. Jesus says four. He's connecting it to verse 19 where he just said, keep and teach the law down to the least commandment. He connects us back. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of those you think do what I just said. Those you think do teach. Those you think do keep. Scribes and Pharisees, they're not in that category. They're actually in the category of those who relax the commandments. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
How is that possible? It's possible because of what we have already seen in our series through the Sermon on the Mount and because of what we will see in the coming weeks. What have we seen? We've seen already what Jesus means by righteousness. Can't go way into it right here. You'll have to go back and listen. But we've seen what Jesus means by righteousness is wholehearted, that's the key, wholehearted devotion to Christ. That's how he defines righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Wholehearted devotion to Christ. We've seen the righteousness that Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount is the righteousness of a transformed heart that is devoted, that loves him. It's a heart that's been transformed to love him and it lives out of that. Our actions flow out of our affections. That's what we have seen and we will see in the coming weeks. That's not the righteousness of the Pharisees. Their righteousness is not one that starts internally with a transformed heart where their actions flow out of their affections. No, their righteousness has nothing to do with internal affections. Their righteousness is merely external deeds. They're the ones who relax the law and teach others to do the same because they don't teach that the law has anything to do with the transformation of your heart. Just next week, next week, we will see Sure, the Pharisees, they may keep the commandment not to murder, but their hearts are full of hate. We'll see in the coming weeks, they may not commit adultery, but their hearts are consumed by lust. In chapter 6, we'll see, they may give alms, they may pray, they may fast, but it is all for show and for the love of people's praise. It's not because their hearts are filled with love and praise for God. They may have all the external deeds, but there's no internal affection. Shades, Christ says that's not righteousness. That's hypocrisy. Righteousness is where the external and the internal match. Shades, when Jesus says, when Jesus says your righteousness must exceed, be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not saying, buckle up, you got to do more external deeds than the scribes and the Pharisees say. No, he's saying, you got to have different internal affections. The righteousness that Jesus is calling for is the righteousness of a transformed heart, where our actions flow from our affections. This, This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. Verse 20 right here, This is the thesis statement of the sermon. Like everything has been building up to it and everything is going to flow from it. The whole sermon is laying out what this greater righteousness looks like that Jesus is talking about. And what it looks like is a transformed heart where our actions flow from our affections. This is the very thing that Christ came to accomplish. The transfer is the very thing he fulfilled the Old Testament to do. Old Testament merely means Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. Christ came to fulfill the Old Covenant and bring the New. This is the very thing he came to accomplish. The transformation of our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we might live for God out of love for God. He came to accomplish the New Covenant. Just Go back and read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Read about the new covenant. Or here, I'll read you this out of Ezekiel 36. This is the promised new covenant. Ezekiel 36, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. 
I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit, within you. What will be the result? And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Christ has fulfilled this new covenant by shedding the blood of this covenant, His own blood, on the cross where He took our death and He rose again to give us new life by the Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts. That's what God promised. There's a new covenant coming that my Son will purchase. And in this new covenant, I'll put my Spirit within you and He will transform your heart, give you new affections, and the right actions will flow out of those new affections. This is what the Holy Spirit of God does. Transforms our hearts, fills them with affection for God, so they overflow in righteous actions. We we are empowered by the Spirit to love God and to live in line with the Word of God, all for the glory of God, because it is all by the power that He provides through His Spirit. You see, you see how this works. Jesus says, We need the Word of God. Yes, including the Old Testament. But right here in verse 20, He makes sure we know we need it all coming through Him. The Son of God. We've got to see how it's been fulfilled in Him. That's the only way we can have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness of a heart transformed where we love and live for the glory of God. We can only have that if Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, so that the New Covenant is in effect, where the promised Holy Spirit transforms our loves, empowers our lives. We can only do this through the one Christ. He is the path between our two cliffs. We can only do this through the one Christ. We don't abolish the law with Christ. We don't, we know, we, we need the word of God. But we also don't apply the law without Christ. No, we need the word of God through the Son of God. How are you going to apply Old Testament laws about sacrifice to your life unless you see them fulfilled in Christ? Yes, we still worship by sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Christ. How are you going to apply Old Testament laws about food and ceremonial cleanliness and Sabbath to your life? unless you see them fulfilled in Christ, who has made us clean, who Hebrews tells us is our Sabbath rest. We dare not apply these apart from Christ, for to do so would be to live as if Christ accomplished nothing. But He has accomplished everything, including purchasing the power for us to live in line with all of God's Word out of love for Him. 1 John Five and verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Did you catch that? How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. I keep my marriage vows and my marriage vows are not burdensome. Why? Because I freaking love Holly Hayes. You promise to be faithful to her and only to her so long as you both shall live. You betcha, not even a challenge. 
all the other options, nah, I'm good. I love her. This is how this works. The Holy Spirit of God transforms our hearts to have affections for God where we love Him more than anything else. So our actions flow out of those affections. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Shades. Jesus tells us we need the Word of God. All of it. We need all the Word of God, but we need it through the Son of God so that the Spirit may empower us to love and live for the glory of God. That, that sentence, that is Jesus' answer to keeping us centered on the one Christ. That is His answer to keep us away from the two cliffs That is his answer to our two questions. I told you we'd get to them. Do you remember those? All the way back from the beginning, there was a first century question. Is Christ abolishing the Old Testament? Jesus answers, no. We need all of the word of God. But you need it through the Son of God. That the Spirit may empower us to love and live for the glory of God. Do you remember our 21st century question? I told you I had the same answer. How are we going to live a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ? How are you going to do that? We're actually going to live in line with the Sermon on the Mount. How are you going to live a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ? Jesus answers, we need all of the Word of God through the Son of God that the Spirit may empower us to love and live for the glory of God. Shades, right now, in, in this particular moment when we've spent the last several years facing so many different trials like Brad talked about last week and we are so weary how are we going to do what Brad talked about how are we, we going to count it all joy how, how are we going to live the, the beatitude life of wholehearted devotion to Christ no matter the cost how are we going to be salt and light this is how shades we need all of the word of God we need here need all of the Word of God through the Son of God. In other words, we we need Jesus. We need to feast on Him through this Word. See more of Him through this Word. Know Him more and be transformed and empowered by Him. His Spirit works through the means of this Word to transform our hearts and empower our lives so that we love and live for the glory of God. Shades, I got nothing else for you. We need, this is what we need, we need all of the Word through the Son of God that the Spirit may empower us to love and live for the glory of God. Amidst amidst all the cliffs, amidst all the questions, this is what we need. The one Christ.